And you can turn with me to the fourth chapter of the book of Philippians. While you're doing so, I want to recall some things from our series in this letter, since it's been so long between sermons. The Apostle Paul is the author of this letter to the church in Philippi, and of course the author of most of the books of the New Testament. Much of his writing addresses issues within the churches, giving us a snapshot into the joys and struggles uh, that the people were experiencing. The first century church experienced much more than, than we really can imagine or fathom in terms of persecution um, and hardship. Many of the problems that Paul wrote to address are, are actually the same things that we deal with today in, in our churches. Things like lack of assurance of salvation or fear or the, the infiltration of false teaching, doctrinal confusion, the attempt to partner the church with the world, and ongoing sin, just to name a few things. And sometimes Paul had to be very sharp in his rebuke of the error and the sin in the churches, but the letter to the Philippians really has an overarching theme of joy, joyfulness. We see it mentioned many times throughout this letter, and, it, and it's even in the midst of persecution and suffering and for Paul, the threat of his own martyrdom. And in the midst of all that, he is, he is remaining joyful, and he speaks of his joyfulness. In this letter, Paul has expressed a profound love for the people, and he commends them for their partnership with him in the support of the work of the gospel. He commends them for their obedience to Christ and called on them to do so even more in his absence. He has shared with them the joy he's, he has in suffering for Christ, even though he's in prison. He told them of his rejoicing because the gospel is moving forward, even among the whole imperial guard. That was a, a reason for joy. And though not as sharply as in some of his letters, he touched on in this letter some of their struggles, some of the things this church was going through. And Paul expressed his desire to be with them and to send Timothy in his place since he was in prison because he knew that Timothy would care for the church as he cares for the church. And in my last two sermons, we focused on Paul's call for the people to strive diligently in their pursuit of Christ-likeness. In fact, he called on them to imitate him in keeping their eyes fixed on those who also pursue Christ-likeness. And knowing that the ultimate goal for the Christian, the prize at the end of the earthly life is to be like Christ, a gracious work of the Holy Spirit in the life of every believer. As we heard from the Apostle Peter in our recent series uh, through, through 1 Peter, Paul similarly told his readers that they were not citizens of this world, but that their citizenship was in heaven, reminding them from heaven, we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And Paul spoke of the realization of the Christian becoming like Christ on that day. He rejoiced in the knowledge of this, and not only for his own life. It wasn't only rejoicing for himself, but, but for the lives of all those who had come to faith in Christ by the grace of God through his gospel ministry, and that especially included the Philippian believers. With all his preceding commands and exhortations and proclamations in mind, this chapter 
this fourth chapter, began with Paul exclaiming, Therefore, my brothers whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. Stand firm on what? On the truth of the knowledge of God and our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Stand firm on the gospel of their salvation as an anchor for their soul. Stand firm in the face of suffering and persecution. He loved them. He longed for them. They are his joy and crown, he said. In other words, their salvation and their adoption as sons and daughters of the Most High God through all his gospel work, it was his reward. But now we get to a major problem. There was a rift in the church, a split, you might say, and it centered around what was being caused and was being caused by two women. No, don't get upset. This is what the Bible says. Okay. Um, so if you're if you've turned with me to Philippians chapter four, that's where we'll be. And it was already working. This this rift that was going on was already working uh, to negative effect in the fellowship of the believers. Okay, Paul had just exhorted them to stand firm in the Lord in one verse, but then he must address these women who are not doing so. We don't know how long this rift had been going on, but it's probably safe to say it had been going on at least for many weeks since news didn't travel fast back then. Uh, it, it has come to Paul's attention, this news about, about these ladies has come to Paul's attention um, through the word of Epaphroditus. He was the messenger that the church sent to minister to Paul from that very church. And, and that's the focus of our text today in verses 2 and 3. Just uh, two verses today. And we want to see how Paul addresses this in his absence and from so far away. And I hope we can truly be convicted and encouraged by the simplicity yet power of the message he has for them. So let's read our text for today, and then then we'll ask God to help us to learn from it. Philippians chapter 4, verses 2 and 3. I entreat Euodia, and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel, together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we acknowledge you as Lord of all, as as God of the universe, creator of everything, Lord. You are the most high God. Father, we pray this morning that as we read your word, as we study your word and this conflict that Paul had to address, that we would be examining our own lives, Lord, that we would be spurred on as the church to change our ways where they need to be changed. And Lord, that though there's no major theological points in these two verses, Nonetheless, this is um, essential to the functioning of the body of Christ. So we pray this morning, Lord, through your Spirit, that you would bring about in all of us 
a sense of humility and submission to your word. And Lord, may it be for your glory, for the praise of your holy name. It's in Jesus' name we ask these things. Amen. This the story is told of a boy who asked his father, Dad, how do wars begin? Dad says, well, take the First World War. That got started when Germany invaded Belgium. And immediately his wife interrupted. Tell the boy the truth. It began because somebody was murdered. Well, the boy's dad drew himself up with an air of superiority and snapped back, are you telling this story or am I? Turning her back on him in a huff, the wife walked out of the room and slammed the door as hard as she could. And there was an uneasy silence that followed a few minutes until the son said, Dad, you don't have to tell me anymore. I think I know why. He knows the answer now. It seems it doesn't take much, does it? We can find ourselves in one moment the best of friends and then the next moment the worst of enemies. Why is that? Can, how can that happen? We, can, we understand how that can happen in the world, but how can that happen in the church? What sort of remarks follow a situation like this? Someone leaves the room in a huff, and the other guy jokes, was it something I said? Yes, it was something you said. Was it something I did? Yes. Most likely, that's what it is. Something we did, something we said, the way we said it or did it, the way it was interpreted. There are many reasons, it seems, why this can happen. It could be over something, it could indeed be over something very serious or over the pettiest of slights. So what was the problem with the ladies in our text? What was their issue? Before we get to the issue at hand, I think it's important for us to grasp who the involved parties are. We need to know that these are not just some people that Paul is giving advice to. These are not just strangers or people that Paul is unfamiliar with. These are not unregenerate people. First, these are clearly women. Okay? I don't say clearly because we can tell there are women by, by their names. I couldn't tell if those are women's names or not. I don't know about you. But we know they are because Paul identifies them as women. He says, help these women. Second, I want you to notice that these women named Yodia and Syntyche are also identified as Christians. How does Paul do so? Look at verse 3. They, along with uh, the other people Paul mentions, have their names written in the book of life. He says, this is a significant point. What is the book of life? It's the book. It's the register where all the names of every redeemed person is kept by God. Now, does God need an actual book? No, no, he's omniscient. He doesn't need an actual book. He doesn't need to write things down. Uh, he knows everything. He cannot be taught anything, and he cannot forget anything. But having it explained in these terms really does help us understand that God knows. He's, he's keeping track. Nobody will slip through the cracks. In other words, every Christian has their name written in the book of life sometimes called the Lamb's Book of Life. And speaking about the end of times, uh, Daniel 12, 1 says, 
At that time shall arise Michael, the great prince, who has a charge of your people, and there shall be a time of trouble such as never has been seen since there was a nation till that time. But at that time your people shall be delivered, everyone whose name shall be found written in the book. And when the 72 came back to Jesus, boasting about how even the spirits were subject to them in his name, Jesus reminded them that that was nothing to rejoice in. In Luke 10, 20, he says, Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Why? Why rejoice in that? Because if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Revelation 20, 15. So when Paul identifies Yodia and Syntyche as having their names in the book of life, he's identifying them as Christians. We need to know, these are, these are Christian women. Paul's not even questioning that. And third, these are Christian women who Paul knows very well. He knows them personally. He calls them by name, identify them as women, and, say, and as those who have labored side by side with me in the gospel. They worked with him in the gospel ministry. He knew them. And they didn't just work with Paul, but, but Paul also names Clement. He names him personally as one who worked with them as well. Who was Clement? We don't know. It was a common name at the time. Paul doesn't specify beyond the name. And then in general, he continues saying, the rest of my fellow workers. He talks about Clement, and he talks about the rest of my fellow workers. These all worked with her, pointing out that there were, uh, it wasn't just Paul that worked with them, but that these, these women were known by the other people as well. And they were involved in the ministry with Paul and the spreading of the gospel. Imagine being those two women, sitting there in the congregation, and this letter's read out, and having all the people here you get singled out, like those old Southwest commercials asked, want to get away? You remember those? I think you'd want to get away if your name was read out like that. But that tells us something about these women. They were, they were well known among the people as servants of the Lord, as ministry workers, they were not backbenchers or hangers-on. They, they, they didn't just come every once in a while and gather with the people. They were a part of the fellowship. They were a part of the ministry of the gospel. They had been in the thick of it, and the people knew them, which, people, which means that people knew that there was a problem. There was something wrong. What is the problem? I mean, what is the disagreement? Why are they not getting along? We don't know. Paul doesn't specify what the disagreement is. Why not? I want to know. I'm sure you would want to know. But apparently we don't need to know what the disagreement was. And clearly God doesn't think we need to know or the Holy Spirit would have inspired Paul to give us more information. He didn't. So what's the point? The point is not what the exact problem is, but what causes the problem and how to change it. That's the point of this passage. This is the only place in Scripture where these two ladies' names are mentioned. They're, they're not involved in anything else that's written down in Scripture. Everything we know about them is right here in these two verses. 
We don't even know if they ever did reconcile. I'm guessing they did, but we don't know for sure. What we know is that this is a serious problem in the church. And by the way, that's the title of the message today is, is Be Reconciled. I think the people knew very well what the disagreement was because Paul didn't take the time to be specific with them. There's an assumption. By mentioning these names, you know what's going on. It was sufficient for him to, to mention the ladies' names for everyone to probably think to themselves, oh yeah, I'm, I'm glad he's bringing this up, but it's sort of un- uncomfortable. It's uncomfortable. Not only did Paul not say what it was, he, does, he doesn't lay blame on one lady or the other. It seems he considers them equally responsible for the falling out, equally responsible for how it's progressed, and equally responsible for reconciliation. They are both given the command to agree in the Lord. It grieves Paul that these women are not getting along. He doesn't wait until he gets out of prison. He doesn't wait until Timothy gets there and lets Timothy deal with it. He must address the problem now. There's a sense of urgency in Paul's words as he calls on these women to agree. He says, I entreat Euodia and I entreat Syntyche. Other translations use the words beseech or implore, appeal or plead or urge or exhort. Again, he treats them both the same. The call to both, uh, the call is individually to both, not, not a beseeching of one and not the other, which might place undue focus on one of them as more guilty than the other, when that's not the point. Listen to Paul's call here. It's a call of love. It's a call of urgency, a call of necessity. It's the same call he gave to the Ephesian church when he urged them to be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace in Ephesians 4.3. These aren't even the first words in this letter from Paul that, that give us a hint that unity is an issue in this church. Chapter 1, verse 27 says, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. And then again in chapter 2, verse 2, he says, Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. And these previous verses where Paul speaks to the church Uh, as a whole, tell a tale of the spread of disunity beyond just these two women. That doesn't mean that these two women are the cause of all disunity in the church, but it's an issue. Now, you probably have examples popping up in your mind of this. And because of our sinfulness and our propensity for self-preservation, you're most likely thinking of examples that involve other people, not yourself. And I'm not saying we shouldn't take notice of other people in this area, as we will see in a minute, but, but I want you to not forget to honestly examine your own life, your own relationships. As we get into what Paul says to do, we should be thinking about personal application and not just that these women are messed up. 
Remembering that this is the Word of God. It has authority and power and ability to change you. So what did Paul urge them to do? What did he entreat them to do? He said, agree in the Lord. Some translations have live in harmony or be of the same mind. And what Paul is saying is is not that they are carbon copies of each other or that they might think the same way about everything. He's He's tying this agreement, this harmony, or this same-mindedness to one unifying thing, the Lord Jesus Christ. And Charles Spurgeon said, as, as to brethren in spirit, they ought to dwell together in church fellowship. And, that, and in that fellowship, one essential matter is unity. We can dispense with uniformity if we possess unity. Oneness of life, truth, and way. Oneness in Christ Jesus. Oneness of object and spirit. These we must have. Or our assemblies will be synagogues of contention rather than churches of Christ. And Paul doesn't say to agree on who is right or who is wrong. He doesn't say to agree to disagree. He says to agree in the Lord. And the rift here is probably not over doctrine based on Paul's strict advocacy for sound doctrine throughout his writing, I'm sure he would, if this were about doctrine, he would be correcting the one who was wrong, or the both of them, if they were wrong. Paul would want them to have it right. It's probably not just a difference of opinion. There probably is a difference, but the problem is most likely something one of them did or said that hurt the other party, or something one party thought the other person did or said, even though they didn't. Then why didn't Paul single out that person? I believe it's because whatever the original problem, they're now both sinning. And this, this really is the problem of sinful human beings, even the most mature among us. These were not new believers. These ladies were not new believers. Let's look, turn with me, if you would, to James, James chapter 4. <clears throat> Let's look at what James says, and he gives a biblical reason for why we fight and quarrel, and he makes it really clear in James chapter 4, verses 1 and 2. He says, what causes quarrels? And what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. We desire and do not have. And we covet and cannot obtain. And you should not think here that desire is limited to the realm of sexuality. And you should not think here that coveting is limited to the realm of physical objects. I want that thing that person has, right? Those both fit into categories and each probably into each other, but they're not limited to that. We can also desire 
to be right. And we, to have our way because we believe we're right. We can desire to be seen a certain way. We can desire to hide our sin and so hurt others in the process. We can desire these things and, and when the other person doesn't see it or understand it or understand that we're right, the frustration builds and we explode into sinful thoughts and actions and words. The scary part is we often don't even have to think these things through or, or plan these things out. It just comes out. Jesus said the, the good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure, treasure produces evil, for out of the abundance of the heart his mouth speaks. These desires and, and coveting are really about what we treasure most. We're going to go after that treasure, and when we don't get it, we'll fight for it, whatever that treasure may be. Again, not just talking about a physical thing that someone has, but, but a desire for my own way. An article from Kevin Carson from the Association of Certified Biblical Counselors based on that James chapter 4 passage, he said this, once a desire controls your heart, your tongue and actions will be the weapons of choice to try to get your desire. Essentially, your words become the weapons to seek to do whatever it takes to get what you want. Whatever one wants, in this case, is the treasure. One's words, attitude, and actions are employed to get the treasure. If in one's mind upsetting you will help get what that other person wants, then the person's attitude, words, and actions will do whatever necessary to accomplish that goal. What is the goal? To get the treasure, the thing that you treasure. How should you respond then when someone uses his or her attitude, words, or actions as weapons? Herein lies the dilemma. Think of the last time this happened to you. How did you respond? If you engage in a retaliatory strike of your own, that means that some other desire than the great commandments of loving God with all your heart and loving your neighbor as yourself controlled your heart too. And catch how tricky this is. You get angry because someone upsets you, so you respond back in harsh tones, words, and actions. Why? Because you want something as well. What would happen if, in that moment, you wanted most to live in honor of Jesus Christ? Where you love God supremely and your neighbor sincerely. You would not respond in kind, but instead, this is important, would be grieved over the other person's struggle. You would recognize that the other person in this moment chooses to live for some kind of treasure. Whatever the treasure, it rules the person's heart and causes this sinful response to you. Therefore, instead of getting upset that you have been sinned against, your heart should grieve over this other person's heart and spiritual condition. I find this article to be very helpful, but, but it's, it's not to say that we don't have an outlet for confronting the sin in a biblical way. But this is about controlling our response. We are commanded to live self-controlled lives as Christians. This person is my brother or sister in Christ. Will I see them falling prey to the temptations of sin, even if it's against me? And will my response be to sin against them in return? 
Sadly, the answer is often yes. Why do we do that? Because we're sinners. We desire, we covet. Should my response not be to have compassion, knowing that what knowing what it's like to be a sinner myself? Which one sinned first? It doesn't matter because they're both sinning now. In fact, they're sinning by not reconciling. This is where I'm afraid we have been all too willing to back off. We try to say we're letting it go sometimes. I'm just, I'm just letting that go. But we're not. It's, it's hanging around there. We start avoiding them or avoiding gathering with the brethren. We're sinning. We're not forgiving. So we're sinning. We harbor bitterness. That's sinning. We're not reconciling. That's sinning. 2 Corinthians 13.11 says, Finally, brothers, rejoice. Aim for restoration. Comfort one another. Agree with one another. Live in peace. And the God of love and peace will be with you. There's a condition on that promise. If we are not doing these things, we cannot expect to have the peace of God manifested in our lives. We're harboring these things. Which one sinned first? It doesn't matter. One or both sides are not repenting of sin. One or both sides are not asking for forgiveness. One or both sides are not granting forgiveness, and neither side is experiencing restoration. And the church is marred by sin. Have we forgotten why Jesus came? We have the ministry of reconciliation. Turn with me, if you would, to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 18 through 20. As you think about your own relationships and what, what unresolved sin you're allowing to sit without reconciliation, let's read and be reminded what the Apostle Paul said God did for us through Christ. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 18 through 20. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to Himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to Himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making His appeal through us We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Are you an ambassador for Christ while not being willing to reconcile with your true brother or sister? I know, but you don't know what they did to me. Does it matter? And I don't mean to say that hurt isn't real. But do we get to draw a limit line for forgiveness and say how far we're willing to go? And no more? How many of us have drawn that line? Fortunately, God has drawn that line for us and made it very clear. He's given us the measuring rod 
for when we can stop forgiving. Colossians 3, 12 and 13 says, Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. There's your line. So when you have forgiven as Christ has forgiven you, you can stop. Or have you forgotten the depth of the pit that the Lord Christ pulled you out of? The disunity continues and spreads to other members of the church through gossip and taking sides. Disunity means you're no longer working for the same thing. You're, you're no longer pulling the cart in the same direction. The Christian direction is to be obedient to the Word of God to accomplish the will of God according to Scripture. To pull or move in another direction is to do the work and the will of Satan. And Peter began to pull in a different direction than Jesus when he suggested he shouldn't go to the cross. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Matthew 16, 23. And Colossians 3, 2 says, Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. We need our minds to agree on the things of God. God desires unity in His church. But this is so hard, is it not? Why? Why do we find it so hard? Why did Yodia and Syntyche find it so hard to reconcile? Did they even try? What do they need? They need help. They need help. Maybe they, like us, were prideful. Maybe they were justifying their disobedience. As they sit there and think about what's going on, I, I'm right. I know I'm right. Maybe one of them tried and it didn't work as they thought it should. So they gave up. So they need help. So Paul calls on someone to help them. Look back at our text there. I entreat Yodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women. Who is the true companion? I don't know. It could be the person delivering the letter. It could be the person the letter is delivered to and, and being read by. He could be referring to a single person, perhaps one of the elders, or to the whole group. The point is, they need help. What kind of help? Well, the only help that we can offer as Christians, one to another, and that is the loving ministry of the Word of God in each other's lives. These women needed someone to bring the Word of God to bear on their situation. And perhaps they, like us, are not in the habit of applying and submitting to the Word of God in every area of our lives. But what does Paul say to Timothy? All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work.
all Scripture. Useful. Reproof. Correction. That's what needs to be brought to bear in the situation. And brothers and sisters, it is our business. It is a business given to us by God to bear one another's burdens. And I would call on all of us today, including myself, to do better. To love our family, our church family, so much that we'll do the hard work of reconciliation for the reward is great. If this hasn't been done well and you've seen it and you're, you're, you're going to approach someone for reconciliation between you and them or to encourage them to reconcile with someone else, don't go in anger or arrogance. Go in prayer and patience and love, desiring what your Father in heaven desires, that we would agree in the Lord. What agreement do we have as Christians? As Christians, what agreement do we have in the Lord? There are many things, but I think in times of disunity, rifts and sin against one another, there must be reconciliation, and that reconciliation is first and foremost in the gospel. Why do we, why should we forgive others their trespasses against us? Because God in Christ forgave you. Do you really, and do I really need more reasons than that? You know, we often can't undo what has been done in issues of sin against one another. But this is not about undoing what's been done. This is about confessing of wrong and forgiveness sought and forgiveness given and restoration achieved. It doesn't matter who was right. Even if we're still convinced we are right, can we humble ourselves and acknowledge, I hurt someone? And can we seek forgiveness? And if someone seeks your forgiveness, will you not grant it? Have we forgotten that we are waiting for our Lord to return? He could do so at any moment. Have we forgotten that God sees and knows everything? Do we really believe we can speak to God and justify our unforgiveness or bitterness towards a brother or sister? 1 Corinthians 1.10 says, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. So humbly examine yourself today. This requires all of us to examine ourselves and think about all your relationships where there may be still a relationship that is unreconciled and ask yourself, why is that unreconciled? What have I done to try to reconcile? Or am I okay with it being unreconciled? We should not be okay. Jesus said, but I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there. Leave it there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. 
perhaps even now, some of you are justifying planning to continue your path of unforgiveness and bitterness and pride. And perhaps you're justifying it because you believe those circumstances, the thing that was done is so egregious that you just can't forgive. You believe somehow your circumstance is different. And this does not apply because I don't know what you've been through. That is, it's a sinful attitude. And I would call on you to repent and obey Christ. It's, it's sinful against the other person that you're refusing to reconcile with. But more importantly, disobedient and sinful against God who forgave you. What can you and I do to change? We must put off the sin of unforgiveness and bitterness and pride and whatever else is in the way of reconciliation. And we must put on humility and submission and kindness and love and forgiveness. Pray for one another. Pray for yourself. Pray for the church. Pray for the leaders of the church that we would all pursue Christ-likeness in this area, all of us as believers. Not only that we would each do it personally, but that we would help each other to do so, as Paul called for in the Philippian church. It is our business. How can we do this, you ask? Pray for humility. Pray for submission to one another and to our Lord Jesus Christ. Pray for hearts of submission and obedience to the Word of God in our lives. Pray as David did, saying, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. And see if there be any grievous way in me. And lead me in the way everlasting. We need to not be okay with unforgiveness. We need to not be okay with rifts in our relationships. My friends, God will hear. God will answer your prayer according to His perfect will. If you are a Christian, you have the power of the indwelling Holy Spirit in your life, and He will help you. Romans 15.5 says, May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus. It is God's desire that we would be reconciled to one another. Let's not be okay with leaving it as it is. Let's pursue Christ-likeness. Let's pursue one another in our relationships. Let's do better. Let's be reconciled. Would you stand with me in prayer? Father in heaven, I thank you, Lord, for your word. I thank you for, or perhaps for the fact that we don't know exactly what the issue was. We don't need to know that. We can think of our own lives and think of many issues that we have with 
with other people. Lord, I pray that through your word today, we would be changed. That our desire for reconciliation would not permit us to let it stand anymore in unresolved bitterness or unforgiveness. And Lord, may you impress upon our minds as Christians in case we've forgotten how far we had to be lifted up out of the pit of our own sin and condemnation. How much you forgave each one of us. It's unmeasurable, Lord. We thank you for our salvation in Christ. Help us to love one another, Lord. Help us to be people of humility, people of submission to your word and to one another. Lord, let us pursue the repair of relationships. And if it's hard, help us to pursue asking for help. And Lord, help us to, when we do pursue this and when we do help, that it will be done through your word and not our own opinions, but that we would seek to be reconciled with our brothers and sisters, that we would seek to agree in the Lord. Praise you today, Lord, and may, may all this be done for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.